0: Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, But inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, teacher, when you say this, you insult us, too. But he said, woe to you, lawyers, as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you were witnesses and approved the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason, also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter and you hindered those who were entering. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a sobering text. one filled with denunciations from Christ to these religious leaders, Lord, we're thankful that Your Word is such a beautiful combination of rebuke and correction as well as encouragement and instruction. This morning, as we're walking through this gospel harmony, we come to a text that is filled with rebuke, filled with condemnation. And I pray, Lord, that we would genuinely and honestly consider what Jesus is condemning. And I pray that if it is found in us, what was found in the Pharisees and scribes, the lawyers, that You would expose it this morning, that You would root it out from us this morning, You would remove hypocrisy from our midst and replace it with genuine, humble love and adoration of You. We know that You can do this work Work that none of us can. You can change the heart. And we ask that you would do nothing less than that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, having concluded Luke chapter 10 last week, you might expect us to move into Luke chapter 11. But rather than look at the first verses of this chapter, we've skipped right to the end of that. And you might ask why. Well, it's because of what we were doing in our gospel harmony if you look at verses 1 through 36, you'll notice that there's a familiar ring to those verses. It seems that Luke has combined some material that's found in other places in the other Gospels, at other moments of Jesus' ministry here together. Or he's recording Jesus saying the same sorts of instructions on another occasion. But either way, virtually all of that material can be found in Matthew chapter 12 or in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Verses 1 through 13 of, of Luke 11 contain instruction from Jesus on prayer. You have Luke's uh, version of the model prayer, what's sometimes referred to as the Lord's Prayer, but I like to refer to it as the model prayer. Um, you also see him exhorting the importance of consistency in prayer and also the knowledge that our Heavenly Father will answer prayer according to his wind and kind benevolence. We can trust God to answer prayer in accordance with his kindness and wisdom. In verses 14 through 26, we see the occasion in which Jesus was accused of working by the power of Beelzebul, by, uh, by Satan. His casting out of demons is, is said to have been by the power of Satan. And Jesus refutes that assertion by explaining that a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. He says, I didn't do this by the power of the devil. Why would the devil be working against himself? Such a kingdom could not stand. In verses 27 and 28, we see another occasion, and this is, this is just like what happens in Matthew 12. There's a little snippet there where, in this case, a woman sits, cries out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that you sucked. But Jesus redirects her focus, and he says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. There was a sermon that we gave just on this specific point as it relates to Roman Catholic theology and their exaltation of Mary. If there was ever an occasion for Jesus to put that down in stone for us to, in some way, venerate his mother, it was there. Here's a woman saying, blessed is she who bore you and nursed you. Jesus redirects focus entirely and says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In verses 29 through 32, Jesus explains that no signs going to be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. We looked at that passage in Matthew 12. And he goes on to say that greater judgment is coming upon this generation because at the preaching of Jonah, the Ninevites repented. Remember how vast a repentance that was? Even sackcloth put on the animals? Jesus says, someone greater than Jonah is here. He says, the queen of the south traveled miles to come and listen to the wisdom of Solomon. But someone greater than Solomon is here. And meanwhile, their response to Jesus was to reject him. For this reason, Jesus says in the judgment, your judgment is going to be greater because you've been blessed with greater revelation and you've rejected it. And then in verses 33 through 36, Jesus refers to lamps and eyes and he warns about against the light, the light that's being inside of people actually being darkness. These are subjects, again, that we considered in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.15 and Matthew 6.22 and 23. But as we dive into the last portion, then, of this chapter in Luke's Gospel, I want to remind you where we are here in Jesus' mission. We're here at the last six months of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's left Galilee, the place where he spent the majority of his ministry time while on earth. And he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He arrives there the Feast of Tabernacles at a slightly different time than his brothers wanted him to arrive. Remember, he kind of just appears in the midst of the celebration and then starts speaking from the temple. He attended that Feast of Tabernacles and then we have about six months until the next big event crescendoing to Jesus' crucifixion, his burial and resurrection, and that is the Passover and in particular his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. There are six months that separate his entrance into Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles and his entrance into Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, when we remember Palm Sunday and the Triumphal Entry. So, in between these events, we've got about events. We've got about six months in which Jesus is doing ministry in and around Jerusalem, in Judea and into Perea. And it's only Luke and John that recount for us, record for us, any information that happens in this this inter, interlude. both Matthew and Mark jump right to the triumphal entry. And so we won't pick back up with them until we get to the triumphal entry. And then all of a sudden we'll see all the Gospels come back together and we'll push forward again together. By now you should notice just how much of the Gospel material is given to the last week of Jesus' life. Around, around, approximately around half of the Gospel material deals with teaching from Jesus' last week of ministry on earth. By this point, Jesus had already undergone persecution and attempts on his life. He had become known as the one who was a friend to sinners and a friend to tax collectors, one who sat even, right? Sat at the dinner table with tax collectors and sinners. Such an individual was certainly being snubbed by the religious leaders. But, wonder of wonders, we read here at the end of Luke chapter 11 of a Lawyer of a Pharisee, actually, here, who invites Jesus to a meal. And this meal is attended by other Pharisees, and, and as we come become acquainted with by the end of this text, by lawyers as well, or scribes, as they're sometimes referred to. We're not told what motivated this invitation in the first place. Perhaps the man was inquisitive. Maybe he wanted to learn from Jesus himself. Perhaps he wished to see if the high priest. That the crowds were pushing was really, in fact, true regarding Jesus. on the other hand, he was inviting him for the sole purpose that he might find some ground of accusing him. We're not told. But regardless, what's even more amazing than the invitation, I believe, is Jesus' acceptance of the invitation. Jesus actually goes. (laughs) It's like willingly going into the lion's den, isn't it? Jesus knew exactly where he was going when he sat down for... It's probably here, guys By the way, breakfast or lunch that he's sitting down for this meal with some Pharisees and scribes. Perhaps we can learn something from Jesus in this regard, from his example. It's not normally our first choice to accept an invitation, which will necessarily require our bold proclamation and will necessarily put us in a position where we're going to be opposing what's going to be otherwise there at the table that we're sitting at. But if given the opening in providence, why not take full advantage of it? Now, granted, you have to be ready to speak the truth boldly, as Christ does here. But we must not retreat from the opportunity to bear witness even before those who are our enemies. I can't help but think of the imagery that's given to us in Psalm 23. Psalm 23, verse 5 reads, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my Enemies. And as I think of Jesus sitting there at this table with the religious elite of his day, the Jewish religious leaders, he's quite literally reclining at a table of enemies, of men who have been after him almost from the very beginning. You see, the psalmist knew God, the Father's care for him, extended even to the table of his enemies. And so here we see Jesus reclining at the table of those who hated the most with the purpose of doing this very thing, as you'll see in this text, of exposing their hypocrisy and bearing witness to the truth of God's Word. I pray the Lord would make us similarly ready to bear witness to the truth in very difficult situations such as those. What we're provided in this account are no less than six woes from Jesus, directed at the religious leaders of his day. But before we consider each one in turn, I'd like to point out real quickly just a couple of things that we come in contact with due to our gospel harmony that I just want to mention quickly. Some have noted similarities between this text in Luke 11 and what we read some time ago in Matthew 15, which is parallel to Mark 7. And also some, press the other direction, they see parallels between this text and what we read in Matthew 23. First of all, the passage in Matthew 15 and Mark 7 involves a group of Pharisees coming to Jesus. They actually travel from Jerusalem to Galilee, and they confront Jesus regarding the practice of his disciples. And if you'll remember this with me, you'll probably, this will jog your memory. They bring an accusation to Jesus saying, why don't your disciples wash their hands before eating? And we had a big discussion back then about what the practice of washing hands and all the rest was. But there was an accusation that came against, to Jesus against his disciples regarding what they were doing. Jesus responds to that very direct question, and he makes a quote, a very dramatic quotation from Isaiah 29, which talks about, your lips might be saying one thing, but your hearts are far from me. And he applies this to the religious leaders. Obviously, you can see some similarities, can't you? But there's definitely some differences here. For example, the location, the setting of this event in the prior occasion, we see the Pharisees coming out to Jesus while he's in Galilee. Here, Jesus is in and around Jerusalem, and he's been invited to dinner. And it's not an accusation against Jesus' disciples, but an accusation, get this, that's not even voiced outwardly, but thought inwardly, Jesus isn't washing his hands. And it's that which Jesus responds to. How many times have we encountered this in the Gospels, where Jesus responds to the heart situation of other people? They haven't even vocalized what they're thinking, what they're feeling, but Jesus is responding exactly where they need to be responded to. These are distinct situations. One happens earlier in Jesus' ministry while he's in Galilee. This one happens later on. Others have attempted to say that Luke 11 is just a recapitulation of what we see in Matthew 23, and there are some, there is some conceptual agreement. As a matter of fact, Matthew 23 is famously remembered as the woes chapter. And we see woes here. There's a different number of woes in both occasions, but there's some conceptual agreement. But speaking against these being the one and the same event, the one that happens in Matthew 23 happens notably after Matthew twenty-two forty-six, in which we read this. No one was able to answer Jesus a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. And then we get to Matthew 23. Jesus is in a public place and he levels these woes against the religious establishment while he's there in Jerusalem. This occasion, on the other hand, Jesus is in a private setting, not a public setting. He's sitting at the table. He responds to the thoughts of the people at the table there regarding what Jesus is doing or is not doing. And when he brings these statements to them, these woes to these, to these uh, religious leaders, he, he makes these statements not in response to any direct question that was given to him. The, the woes which he gives are in a very different pattern and order than what was given in Matthew 23. And most notably is their response to Jesus' woes at the end. What do we read at the very end of this passage in Luke 11? When he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. So, what is the response to Jesus' statements here? They get ramped up and ready to interrogate Jesus all the more. And meanwhile, what we read in Matthew 22, right before Matthew 23, is they had already given up asking Jesus any more questions. They couldn't trap him in anything. Now, why do you spend time talking about this? I just want to make this point is that there were numerous occasions in Jesus' ministry in which these religious leaders were given opportunity to repent. It wasn't just one occasion when Jesus lets this thing fly. There were multiple occasions in which there was opportunity for even the religious leaders to repent of their hypocrisy. Here's at least three distinct events in which the religious leaders are condemned by Christ are just three examples of Christ providing opportunity for the hardened religious leaders to repent of their sin and turn to him in faith. But as is seen throughout the narrative, the vast majority of those religious leaders would not. So it's my prayer this morning that these words from Jesus wouldn't fall on deaf ears here. Because these words still carry the power of God to transform minds and hearts, to give sight to the blind, to give hearing to the deaf. We have some hard words to consider this morning, but the good news is that they're also able to impart life. It's my prayer that the Lord would bring conviction upon the hardened heart so that it might be broken and ready to receive the word implanted, which is able to save the soul. Now, I'm sure that all of us enjoy a good meal and good company. I had the opportunity to attend the wedding of, Michael and Emily, this past Friday and sit at the table with my wife, with Christian and Ari and Randy and Jessica. As the six of us sat at that table, I think I remarked about it at the time. But if I didn't, I was surely thinking it inwardly. It doesn't get much better than this. That's how I was feeling. There's something wonderful about enjoying time with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's hardly anything better. It's the table talk that I enjoy the best. What a wonderful joy God has given us to be able to speak with one another, to laugh, to cry, to exhort, to encourage, to rebuke, to instruct, and to share. Well, for more than 30 years, a monthly devotional magazine from Ligonier Ministries, the ministry connected with R.C. Sproul, called Table Talk, has been in print And has benefited many people. How many of you have read at least one issue or some part of a table talk magazine? Look at all the hands across the room. Ligonier explains their purpose behind that magazine quote. Generally speaking, laymen receive either very little instruction in the weightier matters of faith or the instruction is far too academic, thereby making the material largely inaccessible to average laymen. This is the reason table talk exists to bring the gap between those two poles, to bridge the gap between those two poles. To explain to the people of God important biblical doctrines and and events while admonishing them toward holy living. What some of you might not know is that Ligonier named their magazine Table Talk in honor of a published collection of Martin Luther's discourses that happened literally around his dining room table, where he discussed matters with other serious theologians. And then these were compiled into a book, and it was entitled Table Talk. Ligonier's publication, I think, is well worthy of that name, though, for it carries on the same exact tradition. It contains some of the best, most thoughtful, readable, and comprehensible daily devotions and informational articles available to the Christian community in our time. But as wonderful as Table Talk magazine is, and as wonderful as it probably was to sit at Martin Luther's table and hear him discuss theology with other theologians, and as wonderful as it is for us to sit with one another and enjoy each other's company and have fantastic time sharing conversation with brothers and sisters in Christ, there is nothing that can compare, can compare with table talk with Jesus himself. There's nothing compared to it. Right? Here, through the gift of the Scriptures, we're afforded the opportunity Here is table talk at its best, because it's table talk with Jesus. So I want us to recline with Jesus here. I want us to solemnly consider the words that he offers on this occasion to the Pharisees and scribes. I don't know if the Pharisees and lawyers and scribes had any idea what they were in for that day. But Jesus knew what they most needed. Their spiritual pride had to be confronted. Their spiritual hypocrisy had to be exposed. If they... We're to be saved. And so it is with all of us, friends. May the Holy Spirit use these words to search our hearts as Second Corinthians 13.5 calls us to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. You see, in this table talk with Jesus, Jesus points out at least seven indicators of spiritual hypocrisy. Seven indicators of spiritual hypocrisy to these religious leaders. And I want to consider each one in turn. Because if we're guilty of hypocrisy, we have to repent if we're to enjoy the salvation which God provides. There's nothing more scary than living a life of hypocrisy. Deluded about your true spiritual state. First. First indicator. You're a spiritual hypocrite if, number one, you're more concerned with external rituals than internal godliness. Number one, you are a spiritual hypocrite if you are more concerned with external rituals than internal godliness. You see, the hypocrite is obsessed with outward appearances. Jesus denounces the Pharisees and lawyers. This denunciation of them begins upon his knowledge of the astonishment that those in attendance have. Regarding the fact that Jesus, before reclining at the table, didn't first baptize himself. Literally baptize or here it's a reference to the washing of his hands before the meal. We explained the custom when we studied Matthew 15. that Jesus had very specific rules of how this went about, how you went about doing this. It had nothing to do with hygiene, friends. It was all ceremonial cleansing. And while there are some Old Testament texts that speak to washings and baptisms, nothing of the order of this was mentioned in the Old Testament. As is typical for the rabbis and the oral tradition, things kept getting more and more. There was more and more regulations, more and more rules that were to be followed in order to ensure ceremonial cleanliness. And it seems quite likely that Jesus is purposefully not going through this outward ritual to seize the attention of his audience. Right from the get-go, right from the start of this dinner party, things are going to be different. Jesus doesn't wash his hands. He reclines at the table, and there's a gasp, if not outwardly, at least inwardly. There's outrage. Jesus isn't adhering to the external regulations. But this seems to be exactly Jesus' point. He's going to make use of their shock regarding his failure to comply with external regulations, and then say, that's misdirected. That's misprioritized. There ought to be inward shock regarding the inward reality of these men's hearts. But you see, hypocrites are obsessed with appearances. We're all affected by appearances. Some of us more than others. We recognize that appearances do affect us. We do judge books by their covers. We can fight against the tendency, but there's probably a reason why people spend time designing a cover to a book. Because it has some amount of effect on us. We spend time beautifying the face of buildings because it communicates different ideas to the mind. Appearances communicate. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. As a matter of fact, we hope to communicate things that glorify God through appearance. But hypocrites, by definition, portray an exterior that attempts to mask over the interior. They try to show something different than what they really are inwardly. And living in a fallen world means that things aren't always as they appear. Appearances can be deceiving. For example, consider the fall of humanity. After being deceived by by Satan, Eve looks at the fruit of the knowledge of, of the good and evil and saw, quote, that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. Its pretty exterior contributed to Eve's dismissal of God's prohibition regarding eating that tree. And we know Satan continues to operate in this fashion today as well. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He works through false apostles and deceitful workers, disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. Check that out in 2 Corinthians 11. So Satan employs the counterfeit. He makes use of the fake. He pretties up sin to make it appealing. And then in the words of James 1, each man is tempted when he's carried away by his own lust. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Satan has come. Make no questions about this. No doubt about this. Satan has come to steal and kill and destroy. And he'll do so through whatever lies he can produce. Remember, Jesus calls him the father of lies. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He'll lie and deceive And so we see here why an obsession with outward appearances and external rituals is so misguided. There are many who outwardly appear to be righteous, but inwardly they are corrupt to the core. The hearts are far from God. You see, in contrast to the hypocrite's obsession with outward appearances, God's concern is for the heart. God cares about the heart. And in contrast with a world that's obsessed with outward looks, God looks upon the heart. There perhaps is hardly any more famous example than the one that we come to when God is giving instruction to Samuel regarding the selection of the new king. Remember the first scene King Saul looked the part, didn't he? He was literally head and, shoulder, head and shoulders above everyone else, right? He looked the part of the king, but his heart was far from God. And so in 1 Samuel 16:7, the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at the appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And who's selected? David. David. The one who's otherwise overlooked, right? Yeah, yeah, I've got one other son. He's out with the sheep. Samuel says, bring him in. The Lord looks at the heart. David is notably remembered as the man after God's own So Jesus brings correction to the shock that was being felt throughout that room by saying, Now you Pharisees, listen to this, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of robbery and wickedness. Those are fighting words. You clean the outside of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and wickedness. Then he goes on to say, foolish ones, has not the one having made the outside also made the inside? However, give Your inside as alms to God, and behold, then everything else will become clean to you. By the way, this is the one of the seven that doesn't have Jesus saying woe before it. We've got six woes. This is the one that I have in my notes that doesn't have that. But what it does have in its place is foolish ones. (laughs) They don't escape Jesus' very strong language here. It's a very simple piece of logic from Jesus. He's beautifully expanding the application beyond just hand-washing. If all he did was talk about hand-washing, the potential is that they're like, well, he just has something against hand-washing. But notice, the example he uses is in reference to cleansing of articles. Not hands, but here, cups and dishes. It's a principle at stake here that's more important than specifically hand-washing. And he asks why so much obsession is being expended on the outside while the inside is rancid and putrid. It's quite literally, have you ever been there? Maybe we don't want to admit it, where we've left the cup out just a little bit too long and there's something growing inside of there. Is it acceptable to just dust off the outside of the cup and then down the hatch? Oh, right, we are revolted by the thought of it. But meanwhile, how often do we get into that pattern of living? I'll dust off my exterior. I'll make myself look a certain way. And meanwhile, neglect the heart This is what Jesus is saying they're doing. Jesus says, think about this with me. Isn't it true that the one who made your outside also made your inside? So if he might care about the outside, would he not also care about the inside? And perhaps might he care about the inside even more than the outside? Because that's the direction that Jesus takes us. He says, instead, give of the being inside. It's a weird construction here. Give alms of the inside inside. And then everything will be clean. And I think what's being pictured here, there's several interpretive ways this could be handled, but the way I would handle it is this. is Jesus is saying, give of your inside. Give of your soul. Give of your heart. Give of what's on the inside of you unto God. And then everything else will iron itself out. All the other concerns for cleanliness will be taken care of. If you give your heart to the Lord and subsequently as a result of that give yourself to others as well, you will... Everything you do will be cleansed. It will be purified. I don't want you to lose sight of this. This is really strong denunciation from Jesus. But I want you to note this right here at the very outset of all that Jesus has to say. There is most definitely here a balm that Jesus is offering. He doesn't just condemn them. There's a lot of condemning language, absolutely. But right here from the very outset, he is offering a remedy. He's saying, this is what you guys need to do. It's really bad, the situation that you guys are involved in. It's going to get worse and worse as he goes on. But he offers here the remedy. He says, give of yourselves unto God. If you'll do that, everything else will be taken care of. So thankful that the Lord is involved in heart change. Help me not remember Jeremiah seventeen nine, which says the heart is deceitful above all else. Just yes, for Luke, and who can understand it? But the next verse is such a wonderful verse. Verse ten: I, the Lord, search the heart; I test the mind. And the Lord has provided a tool by which heart examination can take place on a daily basis, on a moment by moment basis. Describes it very plainly to us in Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, that's what we're doing right now, right? We're allowing the word of God to examine our hearts. The good news is you don't have to wait for Sunday for that to take place, do you? Every moment of every day is an opportunity for us to allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction through God's holy word. Second, you're a spiritual hypocrite if you care more about man-made regulations than loving God and others. If you care more about man-made regulations than loving God and others. You see, the hypocrite has a zeal for the minutia. And I want you to note this with me. Jesus' list of woes here is not haphazard. It's not like, oh... Pick that one. Oh, I guess I'll grab that one. It seems maybe haphazard if you don't know something about Pharisaism. But once you understand what was really the sine qua non, what was without which you don't have a Pharisee, you recognize real quickly that Jesus' denunciations are aimed and targeted at the heart of Pharisaism. What was at the heart of Pharisaism? Probably three principles. One, separateness. Two, cleanliness. And three, intense regulations regarding tithing. And these things are all here. Jesus is calling them All out. The Pharisees were extreme legalists. They became nitpicky in the area of tithing. They gave it their utmost attention. But as is the case so often, excessive attention to one thing translates to the neglect of other things. You can identify hypocrisy by its tendency to nature on the minors. To be exacting with that which matters little. And simultaneously neglect entirely that which matters the most. This is where the hypocrite lives. He makes much of himself off of his strict observance of some minutia, and then neglects the big picture. The hypocrite has a zeal for minutia. God calls us to love. God calls us to love. So Jesus exposes the problem. While carefully removing a tenth of their garden herbs for tithing purposes, while they were doing this, they were neglecting justice and the love of God, Jesus says. I think that those two statements, justice and the love of God, I think Jesus is highlighting here the great commandment and its corollary, what goes with it. Right? The second is like and love your neighbor as yourself. First is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's saying here, you're neglecting love for God and righteousness or justice or doing what is right to one another, loving them. You're neglecting this in your strict observance of tithing procedures. Jesus' words, guys, are not without precedent. Statements like these have been made by the Old Testament prophets. We had some of this read. Reading Hosea six, I delight in loyalty or steadfast love rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah six, He's told you what is good, O oh man. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Amos 5, we hear this denunciation, I hate all of your festivals and observances, all these grain offerings and the peace offerings and everything else. He says, take away the noise of your songs. I don't want to listen to the sound of your harps. And then he says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is not just an Old Testament struggle. It is our struggle, friends. It is so easy to degenerate into outward ritualistic observance and not engage the heart in relationship with God. And Jesus says, the Lord says through his word, I hate that sort of thing. I hate superficial worship. that's empty and void of meaning and heartfelt love and gratitude. And Jesus' point here is not to say that tithing is unimportant. As a matter of fact, he even says, don't neglect the former. Right? He says, you shouldn't have neglected love and justice. Neither should you have neglected tithing altogether. But his point is to say this, to open up your wallet without opening your heart is hypocrisy. Can I just give a quick note, by the way, on the subject of tithing? A good way to not stress over whether your tithing is, is appropriate is to give in accordance with principles of the scripture for example first corinthians 16 2 says give proportionately to your ability second corinthians 9 7 says give generously and cheerfully and for we who are storing up treasures in heaven that ought to be seen in our checkbooks Can i just say it that way just let that fall where it may <laughs> let the lord bring conviction on our hearts does the way we spend money show the fact that our treasures in heaven Or does the way we spend money show that our treasures are here on earth? Which way will it be? Which way is it? Allow the Lord to bring conviction upon your heart in that area. And we who are under grace are privileged, I think, with the ability to outdo Old Testament law. I find it such a strange thing when people go, well, we're not under law anymore, so I don't give a tenth anymore. The question I just want to throw out there is, So once we come into grace and we're given freedom, that means now that even the old standards aren't helpful at all or don't mean anything. Or, oh, now that we've come into the freedom that is in Christ, now we can just do away with any consideration of giving. Shouldn't it be quite the opposite? That in grace we've now been freed to do above and beyond what the law required? As if the law was ever the end all of any of this anyway. What does it mean to love and give sacrificially? What does it mean to give generously and cheerfully? I will say this, wherever that ends up landing on you personally or on your family, if you will give generously and cheerfully, you won't be in danger of this. Of this sort of hypocritical approach to giving. Thirdly, you're a spiritual hypocrite if you crave the applause of men more than the approval of God. If you crave the applause of men more than the approval of God, the hypocrite's crave credits. (laughs) They desire to get the brownie points. They want people to observe them. This is what drives the hypocrite. He craves the applause of men. And this is immediately perceivable to God. It's not so immediately perceivable to us necessarily. But God knows our hearts. And he says, Jesus exposes what they love. You know what you guys love? You love the best seats. You love the seats in the synagogues where everyone sees you. You know what you guys love? You guys love the, the elaborate greetings that you receive while in the marketplace. They eat this recognition up. You see, these men act exactly opposite of what Jesus calls us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven. And by the way, then he goes on to give specific examples of that. He talks about giving, he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting. Giving, praying, fasting. And in each occasion, he goes, if you do those things to be seen by men, you'll get it. But that's all. That's the judgment. Yeah, people will think something of you. But that's it. Jesus' whole point is to say, you yeah, have your reward in full. And that's a pretty lousy reward. On the other hand, those who don't sound a trumpet before they give, those who don't let their right hand know what their left hand is doing, those who go into their prayer closet to pray, those who, when they fast, don't put on a gloomy face, but tidy themselves up and go about business as normal, they're doing this out of love for God. And there's reward in heaven for that. You see, the hypocrite desires credit. God's passion is for His own glory. You see, all things are to be done for the glory of God, So you'll either acknowledge that fact and live and die for his renown or you'll reject the glory of the incorruptible God and make an atrocious substitution in the form of created things. That's what Romans one says. Those who reject the glory of God have set up in his place something in the image of corruptible man or beasts or, or crawling creatures. It's one or the other. Either you will live and die for the renown of the Creator and Lord and Sovereign of the universe, or you will live and die for something that's not worth your living and dying. You will, quite literally, as Piper says it, waste your life. If it's done on anything other than the glory and renown of God. Paul understood it one way or the other. Galatians 1.10 Am I now seeking the favor of of our Lord and God? To receive glory and honor and power? I'm sorry. I'm conflating references. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. It's one or the other. You're either a men pleaser or a God pleaser. Which one will it be? Jude, verse 25 says, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Fourth, you're a spiritual hypocrite if you're spiritually dead and therefore a corrupting influence on others. If you're spiritually dead and a corrupting influence on others. If you're spiritually dead and a corrupting influence on others. Jesus now summarizes just how bad the situation is for the Pharisees. He says, what do you... For you are unmarked tombs, and the people walking over you have not known. They have to understand this, this, what he's talking about here. To come in contact with a grave was to make you defiled for seven days. So they even go through elaborate procedures to make sure that all the graves were marked. Because if you found out later on that you had walked over an unmarked grave, you became defiled, and you were defiled for seven days. Jesus says, you Pharisees are unmarked graves. Your whole entire life just ends up defiling people. You are dead men's bones. You are death traps. And this is truly what it is. The spiritual hypocrite is in reality dead inside. No matter how lively they appear outwardly, inwardly they're dead. Kent Hughes comments. We can externally do all the right religious things, but we will ultimately impart what is within The people around us will see the artificiality, the effectiveness, the elitism, the anger, the hostility, the hatred, the suspicion, the sourness, the inner blasphemies. We leave our fingerprints on each other's souls for Christ or for unbelief. The hypocrite is dead. He's unable to impart life, but meanwhile, God is able to give life. The truth is that all of us were at least once dead in our sins and trespasses. That's the bad news. But the good news is, Ephesians 2 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, it's only he who has life in himself that can impart life to others. And for that reason, only God himself can impart life to others. He's the giver of physical life. He's also the giver of spiritual life. And we who have been brought to life by God's grace have the privilege of pointing others to Him as well. For there is only one giver of life. There's only one fountain of living waters. And you only find that through Jesus. Fifth, you're a spiritual hypocrite if you amass burdens for others and do nothing to help them. If you amass burdens for others... And do nothing to help them. The hypocrite engages in a work of burdening other people. We come to a very interesting segue here. After Jesus makes that third woe, it's our fourth point, but the third woe to the Pharisees, one of the lawyers, or scribes who's in attendance, speaks up and he goes, Teacher, hold on, saying this, you insult us also this lawyer wants to give Jesus an opportunity to uh, back off of his hard sayings. He explains that Jesus' words implicate not only the religious group of the Pharisees, but also those who have spent their lives studying the Old Testament law. Remember, the lawyers were quite literally those who had studied the Old Testament law. So that was the law of Israel. And remember, also, a lot of the scribes actually themselves were also part of the Pharisees. In other words, you had some scribes that were not Pharisees. You had some Pharisees that were not scribes. But you had some scribes who were also Pharisees. It's kind of like as if you spent your whole life in a certain occupation or training. It's like a seminary professor could also be a pastor, right? But not necessarily. He's maybe not a pastor, but he could be. It's this kind of situation. So some of these scribes are actually Pharisees themselves. And if this scene wasn't so sobering, it would be comical. The lawyer's looking for Jesus to make an exception or to back off the severity of his words. He's going, Jesus, you're implicating the whole religious establishment here. You're insulting us too here, Jesus. And Jesus merely turns focus, looks at them and says, yeah. What was before implicit is now going to be explicit. as he now calls them out by name as well. I think perhaps it's here that we come to understand the placement of this interchange in Luke's gospel. Because right before this in Luke 11, verses 29 and following, Jesus got through that big scathing rebuke about this generation, this generation. You know, all this is going to come against this generation because someone greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than Solomon is here. All of this, right? But there is the potential that the religious leaders are thinking, yeah, well, we're exceptions to what Jesus is saying. We're exceptions accepted from that situation. Yeah, this generation is bad. Yeah, these wicked Israelites. Yeah, they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to. But we, the spiritual elites, are doing just fine. Here on this occasion, Jesus comes to this place and soundly explains that all of them are guilty. By no means were Jesus' statements limited to the general populace They were laid squarely at the feet of the Jewish leadership who were hindering rather than helping the Israelites in seeing and serving their Messiah. You see, the very ones who should be blessing God's people with the treasures of God's Word were instead heaping heavy burdens upon their shoulders and then doing nothing, lifting not even a finger to help them with their heavy yokes. David Goodling says this, so complicated were these rules and regulations that one would have to be a highly qualified lawyer oneself to know whether one was breaking the law or not. And a serious attempt to keep the rules turned moral and religious duty into an intolerable burden. I think this is a good illustration from Riken. Imagine being held accountable to a study Bible that was produced by the Internal Revenue Service. And you'll get some of the idea of what this was like. And meanwhile, they themselves, like the IRS, know all the loopholes, Right? So they, they skirt right through the whole process, and meanwhile, you know, everybody else is like scratching their heads you know, under the weight of this tremendous amount of legislation. I think a good example of this is when Jesus denounces in the Sermon on the Mount their way of going about oaths, whether what makes an oath binding or not. Did I swear by the temple or by the throne? Did I swear by the foot or by the head? Did I swear? And all this stuff. And Jesus is like, it's all duplicity. It's all hypocrisy. It's all exegetical manipulation and callousness. See, in contrast to that, God's work is a lightening one. Not only does he enlighten us, but he lightens us. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, 330, what does Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you recognize just how liberating those words were to people who've been sitting under the IRS stylings of a religious establishment? Whoa! Oh, you mean there's like there's an easy yoke to carry? Jesus, come to me, flee from all of this horrendous legalism and find your rest in me. You see, those who are truly Christ's ambassadors find delight in God's word and they communicate the meaning of God's word to God's people for God's glory and for the people's good. And they don't seek out ways to circumvent difficulty and difficult and shaky interpretations for themselves while meanwhile burdening a whole lot of people to follow these things. true servant of God doesn't hold others to a standard that he or she herself or him or herself are not willing themselves to bear. They certainly find it a great and wonderful thing to be able to teach and exhort others and to help share the load. Even with what may be perceived as tough instruction, there is compassion and tenderness that is appropriate to the dissemination of the truth We speak the truth in love, and we bear one another's burdens. I don't know what the deal has been with me with my email lately, but I got another of these crazy email exchanges, and I thought I'd share it real quickly. I got an email exchange with a certain Susie Q. This is uh, someone who is choosing to remain anonymous. A lot of times it's best to just not reply to such things, but I decided I would. I I received this email from this, I assume it's a woman, who's exasperated and frustrated with the Bible's definition regarding the fact that marrying a divorced person constitutes an act of adultery. I assume that the person is somehow at least familiar with my teaching on that subject. But instead of jumping into an in-depth defense of my my position from the scriptures, I decided instead I would just reply with an email that said I would love to sit down and talk with her. I, could, I said I'd, a flippant answer wouldn't be acceptable. And I assured her that every command that the Lord gives is for His glory and for our good, and that He provides the resources necessary for us to find joy in His commandments. And I said, it sounds like you've been through some rough stuff. And I'd love to sit down and talk with you. I was told by her that my offer to talk in person was like, quote, Syrup poured over a molded piece of bread or the saccharine smile of an axe murderer. I've never been told that one before. She claimed my reply created a boiling rage in her almost to the point of suicide. I was told I was like the mafia that operated under the guise of a dry cleaning business. She was filled with all kinds of analogies for me. Needless to say, she She interpreted my genuine concern as pseudo concern. She thought it was just all a sham. She thought there's no way I actually cared. And no, I was just putting on a facade. Say this to say this. There are moments when no matter what you do, you'll be accused of hatred and harshness. But we still must speak the truth in love. We must expose spiritual error and prying. And the truest friend, friends, is not the one who just tells you what you want to hear. But the one who has the boldness to speak Truth. Even when, especially when it's hard to do. And above all, my ultimate goal in wanting to sit down with her is to explain to her that when we present Christianity, Christianity is not a law to keep, but rather a gospel to believe. It's not about some set of rules for her to keep. As a matter of fact, the obedience that we speak about as Christians is one that we engage in not out of an effort to gain God's approval, because we can't do that. God has to just give that. That's unmerited favor. But our obedience is a response of gratitude for what God has done through Christ on our behalf. I mention this to say, spiritual hypocrites want to just put burdens on people's shoulders and care little about how that affects them. Those who are true servants of God will walk alongside other servants of God. Six, you're a spiritual hypocrite if you pretend to honor God's servants but rebel against God's word. You're a spiritual hypocrite if you pretend to honor God's servants but meanwhile you rebel against God's word. And this is what they were doing. They were engaged in a huge ostentatious display. Jesus is condemning the scribes for their efforts to He says here, what do you mean you erect tombs or graves for the prophets of God? They were feigning respect for Old Testament prophets who'd gone before them. But these men's own lives indicated that they were actually doing something quite different. Jesus says their action was actually to serve as accomplices in the deeds which their own fathers had done by putting those very prophets to death. He said... Rather than this being an honoring act, what you're actually doing is you're just participating in what your fathers did. You're just finishing the job they started by putting graves over these people. Because if you really wanted to honor these men, you wouldn't neglect their advice. You wouldn't, you wouldn't spurn their teaching. You wouldn't pretend respect at their graves while living in the very same ways that those prophets condemned. And you know, that's what they're doing. And then Jesus goes on to say, all of the prophets, and he lists here, he says, all the prophets and martyrs. He starts with Abel, and he goes up through Zechariah. Now, we know that Abel is uh, killed by his brother, right, fratricide, and uh, by Cain. And why Zechariah? Well, Zechariah is the last martyr mentioned in the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament. The last book in the Hebrew canon is Second Chronicles. For us, it's what? Bible quiz. Malachi, right? But for them, it's Second Chronicles. And so the very last man mentioned who is martyred is Zechariah. And Jesus says, all of these prophets, all of their blood would be laid at the doorstep of this generation. Now that's huge, strong language. Why? I think Jesus' connection is this. All of those prophets were pointing forward to me. And your rejection of me is to reject all of those prophets as well. This generation is going to see this heavy judgment because of the amount of revelation that had been given to it. They engage in a show. God's simple command is, rather than these showy displays, that they would just repent and believe. Some people think if they keep running enough showy productions, God will be pleased. But it's not empty displays that God delights in, but sober, joyful hearts delighting themselves in God himself and obeying him, finding his commands, not burdensome. For God himself prompted, prompted us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is where genuine relationship with God is seen. Seventh and finally, you're a spiritual hypocrite if, number seven, you distort the gospel and hinder others from coming to Christ. You're a spiritual hypocrite if you distort the gospel and hinder others from coming to Christ. Jesus concludes these rebukes with perhaps the largest indictment of them all. These men, remember, these scribes, these lawyers who had spent their whole lives knowing the Old Testament law, they have given their lives to studying, to meditating upon it, to disseminating it, to teaching God's law to others. He says, in reality, what you've been doing is removing the key of knowledge. Ouch. What Jesus just said is what you spent your whole life doing has been contrary to what you've been called to do. He says, you've neither entered yourselves into genuine relationship with God through me, nor are you assisting anyone else in coming unto God. In fact, your life work is diametrically opposed to me. They were completely failing in what was their job description. They were doing the very opposite of what they were supposed to do. The sobering words from James are appropriate here, aren't they? James 3. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you will incur a stricter judgment. Let me be plain about this. Anyone who turns the Bible into a bunch of obscurities and riddles that only the spiritual elite can understand is a hypocrite. You're not to step down from their position. Anyone who closes up the treasures of Scripture rather than opening up the treasures of Scripture, they're opposed to Christ rather than working for Christ. I think it's one of the reasons why God's glory was so dramatically displayed in the Reformation, because laymen were encouraged to read and study the Bible for themselves. While the Roman Catholics are mad that Fuller's and Blacksmiths and whoever else are reading the Bible, the the reformers are rejoicing as God's people are opening God's word and learning and growing in relationship with him. You see, rather than hindering people, those who are genuine servants of God help people. They love God and they subsequently love God's people and they could think of no worse situation than being told that they're in the end, blind leading the blind. And this is exactly what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees. But instead of them being humbled by such statements, they reviled Jesus all the more. It is a great privilege and responsibility to be granted true, true knowledge of the gospel. And then we're given the responsibility of faithfully upholding and proclaiming it. Nothing is more deadly than spiritual hypocrisy. Luke 11 ends with an indication of the response of these Pharisees and scribes to Jesus' teaching, to these woes. You know, once such a line has been drawn in the sand, you really got one of two places to be. Jesus draws this very, very clearly. There is no in between place, there's no riding the fence here. You either repent and return or you reject and rebel. And we read the following, having gone out from that place, the scribes and Pharisees began to vehemently, be vehemently hostile to Jesus and to interrogate him concerning many things, plotting to catch that word can be translated, hunt him. The word is used to describe hunting down like a wild animal. They're plotting to hunt Jesus, to find something, to catch him in a trap, to find him saying something wrong it's obviously that they reject and rebel. Their curiosity has been turned to deadly aversion. And rather than humbling themselves before Christ, repenting of their hypocrisy, they hold on to their pride, they denounce Jesus' rebuke, and they attack with all the fury that they can muster. We see how religious persecution against Jesus is just here at the brink of really ramping up. But it comes... As a result, I mean, let's be clear here. I mean, Jesus' words are definitely bold and strong. But recognize that what they are doing is exposing the true condition of Jesus' hearers. Every statement Jesus made here is true. It's an accurate diagnosis of what the problem is with these men. An opportunity exists for them to repent. Or else, hold on to their sin, reject their only Savior, and suffer the temporal and eternal Consequences of that act. Oh, that you would not respond as they did. Acts 3.19 calls out, Repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, it's the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ working in our heart that is the remedy to Hypocrisy. Only God can give us a heart for godliness. Only as we offer our hearts to God, as Calvin said, promptly and sincerely, will we see true spiritual cleansing happen. Only when we rest in Christ's righteousness alone will we not crave the applause of men. Only when we experience freedom in Christ will we we delight to see others experience that same freedom rather than burdening them. Only when we are given life will we be able to share true life with others. May the Lord, through His table, talk with us, remove hypocrisy from us, and make us genuine servants of His. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I feel thankful for the corrective that Your Word brings to us. But I pray that this morning... Jesus' words to these Pharisees and scribes would sink in deep into our minds and hearts. For those who are abject spiritual hypocrites, who are not in you, who are lost, still dead in their sins, pray that you would awaken them to their condition, that you grant them a new heart, that you grant them new life, that you grant them repentance and faith this day, and saving relationship with you. And Lord, for all of us who are in Christ, we still very much recognize the, the pull that sin has on us, the temptations of this world and temptations of the flesh. Please, by Your grace, remove hypocrisy from us wherever it lies. Help us to be genuine and truthful and real. And thereby, demonstrate Your grace we know, Lord, that apart from that, we wouldn't be that way. We ask You do this for Your glory and for Your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, Amen.